0: You're listening to Unpaused, a podcast for women who want to stage a career comeback or mastermind a new one after an extended break from work. I'm your host, Judy Stewart, and if you want to reclaim your career but don't know how, then this is the podcast for you. Let's meet our guest for today. Today, I'm talking to Julie Gibbs. Publisher, talent spotter and nurturer extraordinaire, Julie spent 25 years in the book publishing industry and her special niche was publishing illustrated books under Penguin's Lantern imprint, cookbooks, lifestyle books, travel, biography, garden books, you name it. One of Julie's most successful pet projects, Stephanie Alexander's The Cook's Companion, remains Australia's biggest selling cookbook ever. With more than 500,000 copies sold since it was first published in 1996. Australian culinary luminaries have described it as the most important culinary work ever published in Australia. When Penguin decided to downsize Lantern, Julie found herself, after an 11 year career that went from one high to the next, out of a job. How she came back from that cataclysm is the subject of this interview. Julie is a serial connector, an energetic Instagrammer, and at the hub of a prestigious and caring network of incredible Australian creatives. She has lived to tell the tale of how you can come back from the grief of career loss and reinvent yourself one step at a time. Having spent her whole career bringing the stories of others to life, she took the time to regroup and turned her talents on herself. We start with how it all began, behind the counter of a suburban bookshop.
1: I studied law arts at Adelaide University in the early 80s and I didn't really love university much at all and while I was studying, I was working at bookshops and I had a job at the ABC shop Mm -hmm. and I had a job at a um, very nice suburban bookshop... And I loved doing that much more than going to uni. Mm. I found uni to be soulless. There were too many people there who didn't actually want to be there either. I found it clinical. I loved my English literature classes, but the rest of it just didn't excite me at all. And there was too much unstructured time. We spent too much time drinking coffee and hanging out. And there there just wasn't, to me, enough focus. So you obviously didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to be a lawyer. And in fact, in the first year, I won the English prize and failed criminal law. So there was the message. Anyway, I persevered and I did lots of sups in the Christmas holidays and just didn't like it very much. And at one stage in the suburban bookshop I was working in, one of the publishing reps came in and said to the owner that one of their team, their sales team, was going on maternity leave. And did she know anyone who might be able to take up a maternity cover? And this boss of mine said, well, Julie would probably be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So the prospect was I was going to be given a company car and some bags of books and go out to visit bookshops and sell them. Well, I couldn't think of any more. I'd love more. So I decided to take a year off uni and that was in the 80s when you could do that. Mm. Thank you. The Labour government of that time, mm. because they, you know education was free for everybody, and you could be as cavalier as I was being. Mm. So off I went to sell books, and I never went back. All right. So books have been the common thread from beginning to
0: end. I should say at this point that Julie has just presented me with the most beautiful book called Marmalade, a bittersweet cookbook. Because one of the great bonds between us is that we're both mad about cooking marmalade, especially to get out of a funk. You know, when one's in a funk, the perfect antidote is to
1: cook marmalades. So. You are you are a very wonderful marmalade soulmate. Well, yes, yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> yes, I don't. I couldn't say that I've perfected the art of marmalade. It's still a very hit and miss sort of exercise, oh, but I it's certainly it's-, it's the journey.
1: While I was in Melbourne. Also being a sales rep, I had a lucky break and the sales manager that I had at the time said to one of the publishing team in his publishing house, "Um, I've got this girl, she's she's good at sales but she'd be an even better editor. And that person interviewed me and I got a job as an editorial assistant. So that was the luckiest break. What does an editorial assistant actually do? Back at that time, they did a lot of photocopying. Oh, right. Oh, well...
0: (laughs) That's like being an article clerk. You could have been a lawyer after all.
1: Yep. A lot of photocopying, a lot of admin, just making the process of the books unfold. Mm. I was working for um, a wonderful, charismatic, lovely woman called Susan Haynes, who actually had her own imprint Mm. at Allen & Unwin, and I was working for her out of her home. It was Mm. a wonderful apprenticeship. Mm. She taught me everything about making books. Mm. And this was just before they were made on computers, so we were actually sending typescripts off to a typesetter and getting back the photographic typeset versions and then using a scalpel to make corrections, cutting up letters and sticking them on. So it sort of craft, really. Yeah, it was craft. It was a craft yeah.
0: as well as a profession. Yeah. So that was the lucky break you got. That was the lucky break. So fast
1: forward, so you became the... So i worked as an editor for a while, then I sort of worked as a managing editor. And then when I was 29 years old, the very wonderful Robert Sessions at Penguin Books sidled up to me at a trade fair and said, Julie, what are you doing with yourself? You've been putting together some very nice books lately. We've got a job going as the Viking non-fiction publisher. Mm. Would you like to apply? And I said, I'm not ready for that job yet. It's a big Mm. job. And he said, I think you might be. Let's have a chat. Mm. So we had a chat and he convinced me that I could do that job. And when I look back on it, I think, what an amazing man to give a 29-year-old a job like that. This is something that comes up. Again and
0: again where a woman is offered an amazing opportunity and her first reaction is to say, Oh, I don't think I could do that and then some amazing man says, I think you could and believes in you and backs you and could you do it? Could of you do it? Yes, of course. of course you could. So it's interesting, isn't it? But that first reaction is, Oh no no no, mm. oh, well oh my god, how will I ever do mm. that? I don't know anything about that. Mm. I don't think I'm good enough. Yeah, I don't think I'm good enough. And I'm too young. Yep. Mm. Yep, I said all that. did publish some of the most important names, if not the most important names in Australian cooking. In that sort of golden age where mm. you had Stephanie Alexander and Maggie mm. Beer and these I amazing women.
1: Stephanie's Cook's Companion yeah. is is the you know one of the one of the pinnacles of my career. Mm. Uh, that book was started uh, when I was at Alan and Unwin and then I moved across to Penguin and took the book with me because it took Stephanie three years to write that book. Mm. And I remember sitting at the boardroom table at the big decision making meeting, telling all these men in beige suits, as they wore then, uh, that I wanted to produce a big encyclopedic cookbook for Australians. That was the important thing. There wasn't, it's not since Margaret Fulton had there been mm. such a thing, and that it would not have in it uh, food on plates photography. Because Stephanie felt strongly, and I really agreed with her about this, that there had been a great deal of successful food publishing over so many years that didn't have that. Mm. Elizabeth David and Jane Grigson, and mm. there's a whole tradition of not having photographs with recipes, but more that whatever you cooked was a valid representation of the recipe, that you didn't have to strive for perfection to make this food mm. that how, if your cake had a few lumps and bumps in it, it would still be fine. Mm. Felt very egalitarian not to have you striving for this perfect food mm. and also there was no way we could possibly have done that because there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of recipes in the book so it was a book that came out with beautiful plates that the wonderful photographer earl carter had shot as pieces of art mm. and recipes that ran on in chapters starting with a b c d e i remember the first print run was twelve thousand copies which was then an enormous print run Because it's a big book too. It's like the Bible. It's a big book. Mm. And there were white knuckles around the table at making this decision to produce this $75 book, Mm. which was also an unheard of price. Mm. Anyway, on we ploughed and it was so successful instantly. We didn't have enough copies and it took three months by ship for the copies that were printed in China to get to the Mm. warehouse. And I remember that the container loads contained 6,000 copies, so we would order it in lots of 6,000 copies. I guess it's probably sold 700,000 copies in Australia. It's a very, very beloved book. So you really need it because it is encyclopedic. And then Stephanie went on to do a a revised version in 2004 where we added another third to the book. Mm. Um, And that's now the version. So the first book had an orange spine and this current version has a stripy spine. Nothing makes me happier than going into somebody's home and seeing what was that orange spine now? Soiled and brown and stained and used and cracked and stuck up with gaffer tape. It's a, it's a very, very rewarding thing to, to, well,
0: the to thing witness. Is if
1: you only were allowed to have one cookbook. That's all you need. That's all you need. So that was a wonderful project to work on and, pr- and provided every kind of challenge to a, a, a young publisher, mm. every kind of challenge. The author wrote way too much and publishing house didn't quite understand what we were doing. Then we had to go and convince the book trade that this was going to be the only book they needed at $75 a piece. There were just stumbling blocks all the way along. Mm. So it was a fantastic thing to to train myself on, really. And tell me, when you pulled that off,
0: I mean, there must have been a reckoning at the end of a financial year or the mm. end of a, at a performance review or something. Did you mm. get credit for it? Did you take a moment? Did someone
1: give you a pat on the back? you know it's funny in publishing you don't take pats on the back because while that's there being its successful self mm-hmm. you are on to next year's budget and the budget for the year after and the budget for the year mm-hmm. after you are so obsessed not with your current success mm-hmm. but with what you're going to produce for them in the future mm-hmm. because these books take two to three years to make so I was always working in the future and life passes you by awfully quickly in publishing because mm-hmm. you're not only producing books right now but you're Hyperventilating about what you're going to do in two years' well, time. Well, it's the antithesis of living in
0: the moment, isn't
1: it? It sure is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, but I mean, that whole thing about not celebrating one's successes is. I don't think I was ever good at it, and I know a lot of people who aren't. And it's such a shame because actually life does move along rather quickly, and all of a sudden, you know, those moments are over and you can never recapture. It's not the same to go back later.
1: No. Bob Sessions did take me for lunch at the Ritz in London. Oh, well. To celebrate. Oh, sorry, no, I take
0: it back. You did celebrate. No, not that <laughs> one.
1: To celebrate the um, CSIRO total wellbeing diet. Oh, okay. When that had been a runaway success. And I do remember that lunch very fondly because lunches at the Ritz don't come yeah. along in your life.
0: What have been your four or five favourite cookbooks that you've done? Because you've really done the who's who of everybody
1: here. I've had a I've had a really rewarding time working in the food industry in Australia. I've really loved it, and what's been so great, of course, has been able to turn my own passion about food into an expertise in my profession. So I've loved that. Stephanie, of course, Maggie Beer has been very influential in my life, and she's a good friend. And I think. My favourite book of hers is Maggie's Harvest, the one with the embroidered cover, because again, that was logistically quite a feat to get that beautiful st- stitched cover. It's a cover that's kind of padded um, and then has embroidered an embroidered tree stitched onto some linen, uh, mm. and that was that was a wonderful process. We've got we've got photographs of the the workers in the factory in China hand assembling these books, very very wonderful. Christine Manfield's been a big big. Um, influence on me, and I've loved working with her. I met her when I was 18. I went to one of her cooking classes. Little could I have ever imagined that she would turn into being a friend and that I, we would work on about 10 books together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we're still working together in other ways. David Thompson, his Thai food book, mm-hmm. that took eight years for him to write. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is really a demonstration of how, as a publisher, you've got to stick with the talent. And, you know, the publishing house isn't seeing a return on their investment for a very long time there. So you've got to keep them at bay and mm-hmm. keep him working. and it is one of the great works of, of food writing. Mm. It will go down the history yeah. of so that, I know that. And he is a genius.
0: And so Julie, when you were doing all of that, given the themes that I'm working on, which are about beginning and stopping and reinventing and starting mm. again and and keeping up a long I suppose keeping the chain of activity somehow linked mm. but keeping moving with it. In dealing with the professional Cooks and chefs that you were working with. Did you see them going through that process from time to time? I mean, did you see them burning out, rethinking, I suppose, assembling their thoughts into a book, recharging through that process?
1: Absolutely. If you are a prominent chef or cook in Australia, you are torn in a thousand different directions. Everybody wants a piece of you. The media wants a piece of you, your staff, your investors, you're constantly required to invent new things you're constantly required to go and search out new produce and you are required to produce a book you know a book is one small that's pile. aside from
0: cooking every night that's and right. keeping absolutely every customer happy that's right
1: so part of my job was to try and work out how the book process might fit into these busy people's lives mm. and that was quite a feat hence Thai food taking eight years
0: and so how did it fit into their lives how hands-on did you really have to be like we you... because you really were providing a lot of
1: mentorship weren't mm. you mm. And they couldn't have done it on their own? It depends. What was interesting was everybody goes about it in a different way. Mm. Everybody applies themselves in a different way. Some people really enjoy the writing process, others don't. Mm. Some people are natural writers, others aren't. So that's what I also enjoyed about it, was that every project required a different set of parameters and requirements, and that had to be my skill, to put together the right team that would help draw the book out of that person. Mm. And that was the key, actually, was also team building and getting the right temperaments and the right skill set on a project to make sure that we could extract that work from that author and make them happy enough with the process that they might come back and do another one that's right and some of them did yeah
0: quite a few of them did did. and one thing that has intrigued me julie is that i mean a you've become an extremely good cook yourself you're a very accomplished cook in the domestic realm, although you have branched out slightly <laughs> into the professional realm Slide, more good. recently. But, you know, that's obvious. I mean, you you must have been interested to start with, but yeah. this has taken you on a journey where you've got to know the chefs, the cooks their work, they're important, the works for which they're famous. You know, over the years that I've been following it, people became really renowned for certain things that they did incredibly well. So you've become a very accomplished cook, but you've also become a friend mm. to a lot of them because I know that morning that I went to the Everly Markets with you, honestly, you knew absolutely everybody there. It was very <laughs> slow work. We couldn't get from stall to oh, stall because everyone wants to stop and chat. Like, that was
1: nice. I think for my personal journey... Having a career in publishing has been an education. It's actually been that education that Adelaide University didn't provide for me. Mm. That's what it's been. I have been hungry and curious the entire journey. And a lot of the books I've produced have been ones that I wanted on my own shelf. They've been quests to find this out or learn about that or become proficient in that. And I've loved that. And being a, a general trade publisher means by definition, you need to be a generalist. You need to be interested in a lot of topics and be curious and want to know more and be able to go and find the people who can teach you and you being the book buying market. Food has been a passion. It's not by any means the only thing I've done. I've published widely across the non-fiction gamut and I've published some fiction as well. Another area I'm so proud of having worked in is health and wellbeing. And I worked for many years on many projects with Kaz Cook, and her book Up the Duff about pregnancy has become the recommended book by doctors for young women when they find themselves pregnant. Mm. And Kaz wrote that in her own inimitable style of being a a rigorous journalist but also being a comedian, Mm. humorist, cartoonist. Mm. I was setting out in publishing at that time to publish information now of course in the internet world that's where a lot of people get information from but when I started in publishing you had to publish information people went to bookshops and libraries to get information yes So it required a rigour and a comprehensiveness that possibly isn't so much done now. But you can see how publishers are sort of filters between that need for information
0: and the provision of information Hmm. so the decisions that you make are really important.
1: Really important.
0: So tell me what happened. So, you know, you were doing this from the age of 29 onwards and then where did it all land? uh,
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. 2004, I was invited to make my own imprint happen at Penguin, which was a great honour. And so um, Bob Sessions gave me the brief of inventing an imprint. I could name it whatever I liked. I could have it stand for whatever I wanted, but that it was essentially to be a home for the illustrated books for which I'd become known. So it, it was known as Lantern and I assembled a separate team in Sydney and we produced 11 years, a vast number of illustrated books, not only in food but floristry and garden design and photography and mm travel and um, so many interesting topics, interiors, and I really, really loved that. So the running Lantern for those 11 years was an extremely exhilarating and wonderful thing. It was a big job. I loved it. I completely loved it, but it was punishing. And part of the punishment was I was living in Sydney and my head office was in Melbourne, so I was up and down to Melbourne nearly every week. So there was that aspect of having to be super organised and be on the, on the run all the time and as I said earlier, you, while well, you've got new releases out there on the shelves in the bookshops this week, you're also worrying about next Christmas's books and the Mother's Day after that and the Christmas after that. I mean, I guess I might have had 70 balls in the air in terms of projects that were very, very much active at any given time. I had a great team. And I think that's one of the skills I've had is I've been really good at assembling good people around me. And then I learned to lean on them and I learned to delegate pretty quickly. That was a very valuable skill was learning to delegate. They always want more from you next year than you did the last year. And if you've had a blockbuster, they want you to improve on the blockbuster figures. So you're constantly chasing revenue. And that corporate system, that's how it it operates, but it does keep you on your toes. The other thing is that you're required to channel the zeitgeist. And you've got to make sure... You know, there's always a mix of projects. Some are very instant where there's a topic happening right now that you've got to get a book out about very quickly. Then you've got something like The Cook's Companion that is not going to be current for another three years. Mm. So you've got to make sure that that idea is enduring.
0: Yeah, that's right. Still
1: fresh. Exactly. So that became a big challenge, is this going to be something that people are going to care about in two years' time because that's how long it's going to take to produce this work. So what happened? So it all came to a horrible end. (laughs) Um, And I think that's something that a lot of people have happened to them now. That is corporate life. I was part of a merger of two companies and my division became collateral damage. And I found myself thrown out the door. It's ironic, isn't it? But I think
0: one of the things that really stays with me when I think about the collateral damage is that it seems to me that whole genre of illustrated books has never been as dynamic and interesting as it is mm, now yeah. and it's almost like in merging those companies and losing that imprint they lost something that had a huge amount of potential and value
1: and they didn't see it coming no it was a it was a very great shame and it was of course I think it was a mistake and mm. others have told me they think it was a yeah. mistake too but it, it happened at a time of intense pressure in a merger yeah. that's all I can say yeah um, so many other factors at work yeah so of course that's been one of the big challenges of my life is when you have a, a job that you've loved every single day of for 21 years and suddenly mm. it's gone what do you do how do you reinvent yourself
0: but how do you even get up the next morning You well, know, with like...
1: difficulty <laughs> yeah uh, with, with great difficulty and and it's like the ending of a marriage or the loss of a loved one there's a very extended grieving period and I'm grieved for my authors and my team and my own identity and all that, yeah. um, it's been one of the most confronting and difficult things I've ever had to face.
0: Yes, I think having your identity inextricably linked with the work that you do yeah. and then having that all come to a grinding halt, it's one of the most flummoxing things mm. that can happen to you, male yeah. or female. Mm. It's just You just sort of don't know who you are. You sort of think, well, I invested so much of myself in that, which I think we all do. Yeah. And then when you're no longer doing that, you think,
1: well, who am I? Very much so. I think for a long time I walked around with my head lowered and reeling from it, really. So that's been an interesting journey and not one I still entirely understand, but I've definitely come out the other side of that intense period. Now is a really interesting, stimulating time of thinking, all right, I'm 53 years old and what's next?
0: If you look back, what do you think is the one thing that you've been able to take with you? Like, even though things get closed down and
1: Mm. put to
0: bed, you actually still are the carrier and the custodian of a lot of stuff, Mm. aren't you? Mm. And I wish someone had said that to me when I stopped my big job. It's not like you have to give your computer back and someone wipes hard drive there's still a lot on the hard drive isn't there so so if you look back to your hard drive I mean what what is the most valuable thing that you think you've brought forward with you from that
1: Mm. experience I think my ability to make personal connections with creative people Mm. I'll always have that Mm. and that's the thing I treasure most from the whole Mm. experience of working in publishing was meeting some amazing people convincing them to go on the creative journey of making a book And some of them hadn't even thought about it or didn't even know how. And then forming that personal connection with them and teaching them a great deal and in turn learning a great deal Mm. myself. My father always used to say to me, no one can take a great great education away from you. And I think that stands equally about my publishing career. It's still all travelling around in my blood cells. Mm. And
0: you will be forever associated with that, even Mm. though you're now doing things that are
1: different from that. I do feel immensely proud of what I did and the books and the projects and the people and the connections that were made and the community that was made around Lantern. Always be very proud of that. I've come to to feel I don't have anything to prove. I did manage some great things along the way but when what you most, most, most love in the world is taken from you and you know the wise old adage is you know, do what you love. Well, I was doing what I loved. So now I've got to find another way of having new loves and using those skills that I I developed in new ways. That's my current challenge, and it's a very stimulating one.
0: So I'm interested in what you've been doing on the side and quietly.
1: It's been a great project. So I've been doing some really wonderful book projects, but also doing them in new ways. Doing them as a contractor, helping people self-publish, packaging books for publishing houses So at a project, and then working out how to throw the carts in the air and watch them land and do it in new ways.
0: So you're doing the consulting, which Mm. is good. You're putting those skills to Mm. work, but in a different way. Mm. But tell me about what you're doing with Chris Manfield.
1: Chris and I have, um, we've just so enjoyed our book projects over the years. And one of them, Tasting India, involved travelling and making a book, which was a very formative thing. Um, Christine and Anson Smart and I went to India for a total of about seven to eight weeks to make this book was a a real odyssey Um, and we did it on the smell of an oily rag and we went around this vast country and made this beautiful book and that was a very bonding experience. Just explain who
0: Christine Manfield is because not everyone will know.
1: Christine is one of Australia's most accomplished chefs and has had several restaurants. There was Universal and Universal's probably the best known Restaurant of Christine's because her golden gay time was one of the desserts that yes. was featured in a MasterChef yeah. final.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Yes.
1: Yeah. So all of a sudden, she she found she had a new public of people. You've got to be Australian out. to understand what a golden gay time is. Yes, it's a, a mass-produced iced confection. I can still eat
0: a golden gay time at a pinch. Mm-hmm. You know, very
1: good. So her dessert version was quite something. And Christine also is an exceptional writer and and communicator about food, and has produced many many books: Paramount and Spice and Tasting India. And so. We've just done so many wonderful projects together. And after I left Penguin, um, it was a bit strange. We didn't have a project, so we made one up. And we were sitting at my dining room table at home next to my cookbook library. And we started sort of looking at the cookbook shelves. And so we invented a series of dinners we called Cooking the Books. And we stood in front of the bookshelves and pulled off the books of our favourite cooks. And there was not a single argument. We both wholeheartedly agreed who the influences had been on both of us. So, we've now had nine of these events. We've done dinners dedicated to the likes of Elizabeth David and Alice Waters and Julia Child and Charmaine Solomon and Claudia Roden and all sorts of wonderful women so far they've been women. Have they all been women? Yeah, they have. Yeah. And so each dinner has been a completely unique event, specially crafted menu.
0: But I mean, it's like 50 seats and you have to get in in one second after you post yeah. it on Instagram. Yeah. And it's,
1: it's a true pop-up in yeah. every sense. Yeah. It's yeah. a, dinner party, it's so a we, dinner party, so we yeah. carefully seat everybody. Yeah. Four courses and there's plenty to eat, plenty to drink. And Chris and I each give a talk about the cook or chef whose work we're celebrating and why it means something to us. Where possible, they've written a letter to the assembled diners, and that's been very rewarding to receive those Mm. letters from people, and they've responded so wholeheartedly about what we've been doing.
0: I know, that's been great, hasn't Mm. it? I mean, actually, to hear from the oracles themselves. Mm. I mean, as a guest at the dinners... To have you read out their letters is really... And the fact that they take the time, like you ask and they respond, oh, it's not all been, done by some PR amazing. company. It's no. all from the heart, isn't
1: it? And Claudia and Marta and Ruth Rogers. Jill Norman wrote... Uh, Jill is the executor of Elizabeth David's estate and she wrote us a beautiful letter and about what she thought Elizabeth would have thought of what we were doing. Now, I thought it would have been a bit scary to
0: go and cook with Christine. And I mean, I know you're old friends and I know you've travelled together. I to know, oh, it's scary.
1: I front up with my apron and my little my little roll of knives and do what I'm told Mm. and invariably Christine tells me to go and get in the back kitchen and make the dessert so that involves a steady day of baking I happen to love baking but no it's still extremely scary Mm. there's lots of sous chef tasks such as plucking parsley and chopping and Mm. um, doing all that and and the rigor of being in a professional kitchen and I've really loved that really really loved it Mm. When you're young, you've got a different confidence. You've got an energetic confidence. When you're in your more middle years, you've got a confidence that comes with with a deep experience and having had to do things over and over again. And you really learn to trust your gut. The gut is so important. That's what I think one has to really learn how to do. And if you try to overthink things and try to overwork them, you can become a copper. You've got to listen to what your true, true self is telling you. And it's easy to ignore that voice and to get coloured by so many people's opinions or so much of what you're reading in the business pages or reading that's going around, but you've, you've got to listen to your true self and see if that's in line with what's going on.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, you're never going to be able to please everybody. No. No, and there are lots of sources of resistance. There are a million reasons not to do anything. Inertia is the easiest, and I mean, especially after you've been through a sort of a event, but...
1: Yeah, the inertia is its own challenge, actually, because your confidence has taken such a battering. Well, one can start questioning, am I good enough, do I know enough? And then you have to remind yourself, what have I been doing all these years? I do have this saying that I I treasure, and I don't know where the saying came from, but I say very often, all the good people find each other. And I really believe in... Um, generosity of connections you're very very good at that you've really um, embraced that in your career you're very kind about introducing people to people and um, making those connections for the greater good there's a great energy in that a great energy that goes around and that that is a sense of community as well I've really loved Instagram. I've loved the community that I've built up. It's... um, And you communicate
0: with your community quite a lot on Instagram, don't you? Like, you actually engage with them. You make friends on Instagram. I have
1: made many friends on Instagram. I've got a fairy goddaughter whose mother I met on Instagram. I've made some really seriously good friends on Instagram. I wasn't looking for them, but when they came along, I recognised them for what they were, absolute nuggets of gold. Mm. And it's also been great for finding new projects, finding people who are good at what they do, Mm. And also, yes, for getting feedback and Mm. putting something out there and saying to people, what do you think about this? Does this matter to you? Mm. Do you like doing this? Do you think this is worthwhile? Mm. And you you do get some great feedback, very Mm. valuable feedback. I've just had nothing but a wonderful community on Instagram. No, I think you're a bit queenly on Instagram.
0: I think you're (laughs) the queen of Instagram. (laughs) I wouldn't say that. No, I think you put it of Instagram. It does enable you to sort of, you know, self-select the community that you... Mm. Almost want to mm. be part of in mm. a very low key sort Absolutely. of way. Yeah. Like you're not forced to follow anybody. You can mm. and you can edit things mm. out as they mm. lose interest. It's mm. been no, I agree. It's with you. one's own curated magazine. So, Julie, knowing all the things you know and having been through, and all the things you're doing now, if you were to advise a woman who'd been through basically what you mm. went through, what is the one piece of advice you
1: would give? Is absolutely to maintain your connections don't don't, and and just don't go off and because you're in the wilderness let your connections lapse my connections and my friendships and and those those people who have faith in you that will help you get through anything but you you have to work at those relationships the people that have been really good networking connections um, people you admire stay engaged Stay in touch with people. Mm. Keep, keep your friendships and your your professional connections alive.
0: But that is quite a hard thing to do when you're feeling a bit like you've had a... It you, is. You know, a huge blow and you've lost your confidence. Like, it is. What, like, I,
1: I made myself... Yeah. going and go and, and... And, yes, and I made myself go and have my hair and nails done and put on a dress and go to events when I was feeling like dying a thousand mm. deaths, made myself do it. Yeah, and I'm so glad I did. yeah, because people at least saw that I, I still existed. Yeah, that's right. And so that's what I would say is as hard as it is, try and and get some get someone to go along with you, but try and summon up some courage to keep out there. Mm. It's very, very important. and mm. and when when you are dealt a blow, Really rely on your friends, on those people that you know have faith in you. Mm-hmm. Um, that they, they they got me through. Mm-hmm. They really did. They know who they are, and they were unfailingly loyal and would say, "Come on, let's go and do this," and "Come on, it's not that bad." And you don't forget, you don't forget that.
0: that human connection, doesn't it? It does. You know, which is the you know it's the touchstone of everything. But it's also it's funny, about it? your
1: own decency to those around you and and having maintained. I can't overstate it, really, having really nurtured relationships.
0: Julie, thank you very much. This has been most enjoyable. I feel like we've just had a cup of tea. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unpaused. I'd love you to subscribe on iTunes or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. You can find the show notes or sign up for news on my website, unpaused.net, or see what we're up to on Instagram or my LinkedIn page. Bye for now.